All right, so I announced to you last week our theme for 2021, the crooked places straight. What I want to talk to you about today is there are three ways in which God makes the crooked places straight, three components by which God makes the crooked places straight in our lives. The first is divine encounter. The only way, the only path toward the, the crooked places being made straight in our lives is divine encounter. We encounter God. And then from divine encounter, there's the transformation of our lives. And then as our lives are transformed, then we learn to live out of the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's divine encounter, there's transformed lives, there's empowered living, and then there's a transformed world. And so that's the trajectory of this year that we're going to go after. And so today I'm going to begin to talk to you about divine encounter. And I'm going to begin to talk to you about the fact that the only legitimate pathway towards the transformation of our lives, God making the crooked places straight in our lives, is divine encounter, encounter with God. Now today we're going to talk about this guy, Saul of Tarsus, who's also known by believers as the Apostle Paul. He is the author of about 13 books in the New Testament and perhaps the most important figure save Jesus himself in the early church. And what's interesting to us for our study today is that this guy, Saul of Tarsus, or Paul, before he met Jesus, was a Christian killer. He was the opposite of an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was hostile towards Jesus Christ. We find him in the book of Acts chapter 9, breathing out threats and murder against the church, literally inhaling and exhaling threats and murder against the church. With every breath, he inhaled threats. And when he exhaled, murder. Threats, murder. I mean, he's inhaling and exhaling threats and murder against the church. So this is not a guy who's on the fence. This is not a guy who kind of goes to church uh, half-heartedly. No, this guy is against. He wants to destroy the church. He wants to bomb the church. He wants to kill the pastors. He wants to drive Christians out. He wants to destroy the faith. He is against it. And the question is, how did this guy go from being violently against the gospel of Jesus to being willing to give his life for it, which he ultimately did? How did that transformation of his life happen? How did that crooked way in his life become straight? What we're going to discover today as we turn our hearts towards Scripture is that that transformation of his life, that crooked way was made straight in three days. There was a three-day crisis event. A three-day crisis event in which God radically changed his life, turned him around 180 degrees. What I'd like to suggest to you today is that some of you have some crooked ways in your life that you have it in your mind that it's going to take years to fix it. It's going to take years to turn this. It's going to take years and years and years and years and years. And yes, sometimes it does take years and years and years and years. But what could take years and years in the natural could be done in three days with an encounter with God. Somebody was talking to me about an addiction that they had. And they said, is it possible for it to be broken? And I said, absolutely. And they said, well, how? And I said, well, there's two ways. The one way is to go through 
a program in which there's a very clear and rigorous system of accountability. And the second way is to have a dramatic encounter with Christ. Now, oftentimes we need both of those things together. However, the foundation of it all is a dramatic encounter with Christ. And what I want to propose to you today, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs only to the poor in spirit. That is, he said it in Jeremiah uh, chapter 29, verse 12. He said, seek me and you shall find me when you search for me with all of your heart. God is found only by those who seek him. He is not found by the curious. He's not found by the open. I hear people say, oh yeah, I'm open. I, I don't know if I believe, but I'm open. I'm open. I'm... God is not found by the open. He's not found by the spiritually curious. He's not found by, you know, well, I just, you know I'm just going to hang around. He's not found by those who hang around the church waiting for something to happen. He is not found by those except those who seek him. Seek me and you shall find me when you search for me with all of your heart. The foundation of everything that we will say this year is that if you desire for the crooked places to be made straight in your life, you must begin to pursue God with all of your heart. You must seek him. If you want to find him, you must seek him. And so many of us are really sitting around waiting for God to seek us. Well, when God wants me, I'm here. And if he wants to say something to me, I'll hear it. And if he wants to meet me, he can wake me up in the middle of the night. No, he already sought you. It's called the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He already sought you with all of his heart. It's called the cross of Jesus Christ. He came from heaven to earth. He was born as a child. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. That was him seeking you. He sought you by sending the Holy Spirit. He sought you by sending his word. And he seeks you every week. Every time you enter into one of these services, he's seeking you. And so it's no longer up to him to seek you. Now, you must respond to the fact that he has sought you by seeking him. Which means that if you don't know him and if you're not close to him and if you, if you haven't encountered him, it's not his fault. He's done everything to come after you. It's your turn now to decide, do you want him or not? And this is the, this is the key that God is, God is found only by those who seek him and he is sought only by those who are desperate. God is found only by those who seek him, and he is sought only by those who are desperate. And the reason many of us have not found him, well, first of all, the reason we haven't found him is because we haven't sought him, and the reason we haven't sought him is because we're not desperate to find him. You see, you don't seek him until you become desperate to find him, and you become desperate to find him only at the place in which you recognize that your own way is bankrupt. The poor in spirit, the word literally means bankrupt. Blessed are the bankrupt in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. At that very place where you recognize the bankruptcy of your own way. See, may I say to you that salvation, coming to Christ, begins when you recognize the bankruptcy of your own way. 
And until you recognize the... Listen, if you think you're a Christian, but you have never come to grips with the bankruptcy of your own way, you are not a Christian. You are not saved. You don't know Jesus because had you met him, you would have come to grips with the bankruptcy of your own way. You would have, you would have cried out in your heart, I have been in darkness. Bring me into the light. And there's, the churches are filled in America with people who believe they are believers but don't actually believe in Jesus because they have not come to grips with the bankruptcy of their own way. If you are not the bankrupt in spirit, the kingdom of God does not belong to you. I was thinking of a couple of encounters. The first was in Luke 18, 18, where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, first he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What we find is actually the motivation of the rich young ruler in asking this question is not desperation, but self-justification. He was coming to be patted on the back by Jesus. He was coming to show Jesus how good his way was. He was coming to hear Jesus say, well done, you're doing great. Keeping those commandments, way to go. You keep on keeping those commandments. That's awesome, well done. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. You know the commandments. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Honor your father and your mother. And the man says, these I've kept since my youth. I'm doing good. I'm doing great. I'm a moral person. I don't steal. I don't kill. I tell the truth. I pay my taxes. I don't cheat. I don't lie. I don't hate anybody. I love everybody. I don't cuss. I don't chew. I don't go with girls who do. And Jesus said, good for you. You want a cookie? Congratulations. But there's one thing you still lack. Go sell everything you have, all of your possessions, and give all the money to the poor. Then you'll have riches in heaven, and then come follow me. And the scripture says, the man became sorrowful. And when Jesus saw how sorrowful he became, he turns to the crowd and says, how hard is it for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I know I've heard people say, well, there was a gate back then called the eye of the needle and it was really hard for camels to get through. Uh, that's, an, an, that's anachronistic. Actually, that, there was a gate, but that gate did not yet exist at the time when Jesus said that. He was talking about a literal needle. He was literally saying, it's impossible. And how do I know? Because after he says that, the disciples say to him, Lord, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, you're right. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Why does Jesus break down this rich man like this? Why does Jesus require such, such radical, something so radical from him? Sell all your possessions? I mean, what if we turn that into a doctrine? None of you can be saved unless you sell everything you have, give all the money to the poor, and then come follow Jesus. What if we turn that into a doctrine? Let me tell you why Jesus did this to this man. He didn't say this to anybody else, only this rich young ruler. You want to know why? Because that's what was necessary to move his heart into a place of desperation. 
That would be the only thing that would posture his heart into the place where he could actually become poor in spirit. Where he could recognize that my way is bankrupt. Where I need God. Listen, God loves you so much that he will allow you to walk through whatever is necessary to posture your heart in the place of poverty of spirit. And so we see this with this guy, Saul of Tarsus. He's inhaling and exhaling threats and murder against the church. And I'm going to read here Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 3. He's on his way to Damascus. He is going there to persecute the church. He's going there to jail some Christians. He's going there to murder some Christians. Verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Sounds very peaceful, doesn't it? This was not a peaceful light. Verse 4, then he fell to the ground. The light was so jarring, it knocked him to the ground. And a voice, and then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Verse 6, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what to do. The crooked place is straight. Saul had some crooked places in his life. The problem with Saul was that he thought they were straight. You see, if you look at the life of Saul, he was a God seeker. He sought God with all of his heart, but completely in the wrong direction. Remember I told you that God is only found by those who seek him? Well, Saul sought him. He sought God with all of his heart. He sought him so much that he was willing to kill for God. He sought him so much that he was willing to go out and seek these people that he believed to be against God and imprison them. He was so jealous for God. He was jealous for scripture. He was jealous for the traditions of his elders. He was seeking God with all of his heart. He wanted nothing more than to serve God with all of his heart. The first thing you need to know is that just because you desire to serve God with all of your heart doesn't mean you're serving him. And just because you desire to seek God with all of your heart doesn't mean you have found him yet. The problem with the crooked places that need to be made straight in our lives is that we can't see them. Those crooked places look straight to us sometimes. Because we're living in the flesh and we're seeing things according to the flesh and, and, and they look straight. When I look at what's happened with politics in our nation right now, I see people who are walking in crooked ways, but it looks straight to them. They think they're doing it in the name of God, just like Saul thought he was doing it in the name of God. They think they're serving God, but they're walking in crooked ways. And when I see that, there's a compassion in me at the same time. Because maybe there's some crooked ways in my life that I can't see. 
Maybe there's some ways in which I'm passionately moving, thinking towards God, but in actuality I'm moving away from God. And so now he's on the road to Damascus. He's almost there. His heart is bursting with desire to fulfill the will of God in persecuting the church. And suddenly, the first thing, a number of things happen to him. First thing that happens, he sees a light. Second thing that happens, he falls to the ground. Third thing that happens, he hears a voice. This is what made the crooked places straight in his life. He sees a light. He falls to the ground, and he hears a voice. And if we are to be saved, we must see a light, we must be knocked to the ground, and we must hear a voice. First, he sees a light. You know, it's interesting that you can think that the light is on. Imagine being in a room where you think it's full of light and somebody comes in and actually turns on the light? How jarring that is? How disruptive that is? You see, light in Scripture goes all the way back to Genesis. The first time that light appears and is spoken of in the Bible is paradigmatic to the theology of light throughout the entire Scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in the New. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. You see this situation of chaos. The earth is formless and void. Darkness is upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. Light is always the beginning of God's creative work. Whenever God gets ready to do anything, he always begins with light. He sends light before he sends breakthrough. He sends light before he sends blessing. He sends light before he sends revival. He sends light before he sends you more money. He's going to send you some light. Light is the beginning of God's creative work. Let there be light. And there was light. The same Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Do you realize that the devil is working overtime to blind our minds so that we cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God? Because if that light starts to shine on you, your eyes are opened. If that light starts to shine on you, you're able to see. If that light starts to shine on you, you can no longer stumble around in the darkness anymore. The first thing that happens for Saul is that a light shines around him. It's a creative work. And then he says two verses down in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for it is the God who called light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts so that we can see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. The God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. He's literally saying that in the beginning when God said, let there be light and there was light, it's the same power and the same work of God that speaks into our hearts and says, let there be light. Now all of a sudden you can see the gospel can shine on you. The gospel can't shine on you until God speaks into your heart and says, let there be light. And you think you're walking in the light and all of a sudden God turns on the light and you realize you've been in darkness the whole time. 
If you have not had a moment in which you realized before the Lord that you've been walking in darkness, you haven't come into the light yet. You haven't come into the light yet. Matter of fact, John's gospel opens with this indictment that the true light had come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. This is the natural condition of our fallen hearts. We love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil. What we want is to come to church and experience a ritual. We want to come to church and go through the motions, but we don't want light to shine into our hearts because our deeds are evil. You want to know the quickest way to get somebody to leave your church is start shining light into some area of darkness in their heart. Start allowing the gospel to speak to the darkness of their heart. No, I don't want that. I just want a nice, safe place where I can be anonymous, where I can be nameless and faceless, and I can go to the, through the motions and walk away feeling like I've done something, like I've satisfied some religious requirement and I've made God happy because I'm here. But this was a moment that Saul could not escape. The light hits him, and it's a disorienting light. You, ever, you know what it's like to experience a disorienting light where, where like you're, you're asleep, and all of a sudden somebody comes in your room and turns on the light. You know what I mean? It's like, ah, ha, ha, ah, ha. It's a story. It is not, it's not a fun light. When we think of the light shining around it, it just feels like, ah, like just this warm, inviting light. Ah, like, it's like Saul was going, this is so beautiful. That's not what he was doing. He fell to the ground. The light was so disorienting that it knocked him off of his beast. He not only saw a light, but he fell to the ground. He was knocked off of his mode of transportation. He was on his way to rebellion and God knocked him down off of his beast. There is no greater mercy that God can show you than to knock you down off of your beast when you're on the way to rebellion. On the way, knocked off of his beast. Do you know we get knocked off of our beasts all the time? Every time you're on, you think you're getting ready to do something good, you think the thing you're trying to do is good, and it fails, and, and you fall to the ground. You get knocked down. Those trials and those tribulations that, that, that we walk through in life are the way God knocks us down. And the hardest thing is when we feel like God knocked me to the ground when I was on my way to do something good. Why? Because I'm not able to see the rebellion in my own heart that God is able to see. I think I'm on the way to do something good, not realizing that I'm doing it out of an evil motivation, and God sees it. So he says, knock him down again. Knock him down off of his beast. And here's the worst part of it, that when we get knocked down off of our beast, we have a choice to make. And the choice is, does your heart turn in repentance towards God, or do you start blaming everybody else? When you get knocked down off to your beast, do you start pointing the finger? You knocked me down. He knocked me down. You knocked me down. It's these people that knocked me down. It's those people that knocked me down. It's these. Do you spend all your time laying down there crying about who knocked you down? Or do you simply lay there and open your heart and turn in repentance towards God? It is amazing to me how immune to the spirit of repentance 
American Christianity has become. How incapable of repenting we've become. We will blame before we will repent. We will scapegoat before we will repent. Anything to keep from saying, maybe God knocked me down. Even David, when he was being driven out of Jerusalem by his own son and, and Shimei or whoever it was was throwing rocks at him, even David said, maybe God told him to throw those rocks at him. Even David was willing to humble his heart and he hadn't done anything wrong. Let me kill him. No, don't kill him. Maybe God told him to throw rocks at me. If God didn't tell him to throw rocks at me, God's going to take care of him. But if God did tell him to throw rocks at me, I'm not going to be the one to harm him. Maybe God knocked me down. Maybe God knocked me down on my way to rebellion. Maybe God saw the wickedness in my heart. Maybe God, it maybe got, because listen, this is the crazy thing. The most gracious and loving thing God can do for you is knock you down off of your beast. Because when God knocks you off of your beast, it's not a punishment. It's not a rejection. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to come into the light. It's an invitation to receive the spirit of repentance. It's an invitation to open your heart. And what happens is that when God knocks you down, if you don't open your heart, you never hear the voice. And let me tell you something. The light and the ground are not enough. You need the voice. The light. See, there's some of you listening to me right now. You watched me right now. And you've had moments in your life where you've seen the light and you've been knocked to the ground. But you, you turned away from the Lord on the ground instead of towards him. And so you never heard the voice. Instead, you just got up again. When the light stopped, you got up and got right back on that beast and started heading back towards Damascus. And guess what happened? He knocked you down again. The light shone again. He knocked you down again. And every time it happens, you get more bitter and you get more angry. You can think of all the people who did this to you and did that to you and did this to you and did that to you instead of stopping and saying, here I am, Lord. What is it that you're trying to say? I need the voice. Speak to me. And now here comes the voice. He hears the voice. Saul. Saul. Shaul. Shaul. Why do you persecute me? Do you hear what the voice says? You see, we want the voice of Jesus to speak to us and say something like this. I love you so much. You're my child. You're my precious child. And I've loved you before the foundation of the world. I've loved you. And I love you just the way you are. You don't need to change anything. And that's not what the voice of Jesus says at all. Instead, the voice of Jesus says, you're against me and you don't know it. You're fighting me. You think you're working for me, but you're working against me. Why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What does he mean by that? I've been, the goads, the ox, that's what the, you use to direct an ox. If the ox starts moving the wrong direction, you take the goad and you, you hit the, the ox with the goad and move him back in the right direction. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What the Lord has been saying is, I've been trying to tell you this. I've been trying to touch your heart. I've been reaching for you and you've been kicking against the goads. Why are you persecuting me? 
And listen to what Saul says. Who are you, Lord? I've been, I thought I was serving you my whole life. Now at this moment, I realize I don't even know who you are. I've been serving a caricature of God. But now I'm hearing his voice and he's telling me that I've been working against him. Who are you, Lord? All I need to know is who you are. I'll respond to you. Just tell me who you are. Show me. See, this is the heart of salvation. Who are you, Lord? This is when you know that you're entering into the kingdom. Lord, just show me who you are and I'll serve you. Show me who you are. Tell me your name. Who are you, Lord? I'll never fight against you again. If I know who you are, I'll never fight against you again. If I know who you are, if you tell me who you are, I'll never persecute you again. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord responds, I am Jesus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And now listen to what Saul says, and this seals it right here. What do you want me to do? You know what that statement is? Surrender. When God knocks you down off your beast, when God shines his light into the darkness of your heart, when God causes you to realize the bankruptcy of your ways, when you realize that the way I've been living my life, I've been living in rebellion against God, I've walked away from him, but now he's calling me back. All I need to know, Lord, is what do you want me to do? You direct me. If you don't want me going to Damascus, I'm not going to Damascus. If you want me to lay right here on the ground, I'm going to lay right here on the ground. If you want me to go back to Jerusalem, I'll go back to Jerusalem. Now that I see and know that you are the Lord... I just need you to know, to tell me, what would you have me to do? You see, encounter with God, encounter with God is this. This is the definition of encounter with God. It is the means by which the soul awakens to the presence, power, and love of God and responds by giving God its forever yes. I'm going to say that again. Encounter with God is the means by which the soul is awakened to the reality of God's presence, power, and love and responds by giving God its forever yes. Until your soul has given God its eternal forever yes, you have not encountered God yet. I don't care if you've rolled around on the floor. I don't care if you said, shunama, hanama, sanama. I don't care if you've got lint in your hair. I don't care if you've cried and wept and trembled. Until your soul says yes to God, the encounter is not complete. And so many of us have had half an encounter with God. You've seen the light fall into the ground, but haven't heard the voice. You've seen the light fall into the ground and heard the voice, but haven't said, who are you? You've seen the light fall into the ground, heard the voice, said, who are you? But your soul has not said, what do you want me to do? Surrender is what completes the encounter. And when Saul says to Jesus, what would you have me to do? He says, go on into Damascus, and you'll be told what to do. It says, when Saul got up and opened his eyes. When he had opened his eyes, he saw no one. Watch this. He gets up off the ground. He opens his eyes, 
and he sees no one. He's blinded to the world so that he can see the kingdom. If God is going to open your eyes to his kingdom, he's going to shut your eyes to this world. And sometimes God blinds you so that he can give you sight. He's led by the hand into Damascus. For three days he is without sight, and he neither eats nor drinks anything. And this is the hardest part. There's three days of darkness. We want microwave encounters with God. Where we don't have to struggle, where we don't have to suffer, where we don't have to be disoriented. We just want God to burst in the room, fire touch our hearts, everything changes, the joy of the Lord comes. Yay! Happy, happy, joy, joy. Let the devil know not today. And all of a sudden everything is hunky-dory. But this is a violent crisis event for, for Saul of Tarsus that lasts for three days. Three days now of trying to figure out what in the world happened. Three days in a room by himself, no food and no water, rolling around the floor, realizing that everything that he's believed is wrong. But I don't know what to believe now, but I know the voice that I heard is true. I know the light that I saw is true, but I don't know anything else. Three days in darkness, you see that three-day motif goes all throughout Scripture, doesn't it? Remember when God told Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, and take him and offer him as a burnt offering on the place where I'll show you. How long of a journey was it to that mountain? Three days. For three days, in Abraham's mind and his heart, his son was dead. When Jonah was swallowed up in the belly of the whale, how long was he in the belly of the whale? Three days. That crisis event that changed this wayward prophet to a true prophet of God, it lasted for three days. That crisis event that took Abram and turned him into the father of faith to all who believe, that ratified the blessing. So God says, in blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I'll multiply you, and I'll make your descendants like the sands of the sea. How did it happen? After a three-day crisis event in which he lost his own son, which was prophetic of another three-day crisis event in which the Lord of glory was hung on a cross between earth and heaven with nails in his hands and his feet and a crown of thorns on his head. And when he gave up the ghost and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, they laid him in a tomb, and for three days he was in the ground. God allowed Abraham to experience what he knew he was going to experience, the loss of his son for three days. But God highly exalted him and gave him the name that was above every name. You see, some of you right now are in the middle of your three days where you've been knocked to the ground. You submitted your heart to God, but now you're without sight for three days and you don't know why. I can't see where I'm going. I know you've spoken to me, but why am I in the dark? It's because God allows you to walk through that dark night of the soul because in a minute, he's going to call you out of that dark night. He's going to restore your sight in the natural, but now you're not going to see in the natural anymore. Now you're going to see in the spirit. Now now yours will be the kingdom of God. And what happens is many of us turn away during those three days. Walk away in the midst of the three days. Stumble in the darkness to go find our beast. So we can get back to our old life and our old way. But Saul, no, he waits. He waits before the Lord. And one day... At the end of that third day, there comes a knock at the door. It was a man named Ananias. The Lord had appeared to him in a vision and said, Go into the street called Straight and inquire in the home of one Simon a Tanner. 
for one Saul, for behold, he prays. I'm sending you to him that he might receive his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said, Lord, don't you know this guy? This guy Saul, I've heard of him. He's a Christian killer. Jesus says, no, 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 he's a chosen vessel. He used to be a Christian killer. That was the old way. But I've, I've gone before him and I've made the crooked places straight in his life. You don't know what I've done on the inside of him. How three days ago he was killing us. Yeah, well, now he's one of you. Three days is all I need to change a life. Three days. But it was a pain, it's been a painful three days for him. But Ananias, now I need you to bring him out of that three days. Now I need you to bring him into the light. Go. He's a chosen vessel. I'm going to show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Go, Ananias. And Ananias walks in the room and says, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, I'm here so that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happens on that third day, as Ananias prays over this man, Saul of Tarsus, is number one, the scales fall from his eyes. And now for the first time in his life, he can truly see. He sees life as God created it. He sees life as God ordered it. He sees by the spirit and not by the flesh. And the second thing that happens is he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And being filled with the Holy Spirit means that that encounter, that divine encounter that happened on the Damascus Road is now an indwelling presence. It's not just a light that knocks you down. Now it's a light that dwells in your heart. Listen, this year my prayer is so many of you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need the baptism in the Holy Spirit. You need tongues of fire coming from the inside. My prayer is that God would fill you to overflowing with the power of the Holy Spirit. But for some of you, before that moment of spirit fullness comes, there's going to be a crisis event in which God has to knock you off of some stuff. It's not always pretty, but that moment of encounter comes. And when that moment of encounter comes, suddenly we truly see. But what starts it? God is only found by those who seek him. Seek me and you shall find me when you search for me with all of your heart. This is an invitation. This year is an invitation if you want to find him, you must seek him. If you want to find him, you must make a decision. I'm going to stop fooling around and I'm going to start seeking him. I'm going to seek him with all of my heart. Seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Some of you have been seeking the right way instead of seeking the right one. Some of you have been asking God, show me which way to go instead of saying, God, show me you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Instead of seeking the way, seek the one. You've been asking God what the right business is. No, you need to seek the one, not the way, the one. And if you seek the one and find the one, you also find the way. If you seek the way and neglect the one, you don't even find the, the way. God is inviting us. Seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. It's a decision the greatest threat to life in the spirit is passivity, complacency. Complacency is simply the idea that I'm fine just the way I am. Like the Laodicean church said, we have become rich and we have need of nothing. 
That's how the enemy keeps us blinded. But unlike the rich young ruler, we must become like the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. When Paul and Silas were in that Philippian jail and the Lord had radically and, and, and miraculously delivered them and the Philippian jailer came in thinking that everybody had gone and he was going to fall on his own sword and kill himself. And, and Paul says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And the Philippian jailer takes them to his home and dresses their wounds and then falls before them and says, what must I do to be saved? In other words, he saw the hand of God moving right in his midst. He saw the hand of God at work in Paul and Silas. And he realized at that moment that God was real. That was the light shining on his heart that caused him to realize, I'm not walking with him. I don't know him. What must I do to be saved? You see, that's the heart. If you've never come to that place where you've asked that question, what must I do to be saved? Maybe you're not. And perhaps the most loving thing that I can say to some of you today is that you're not saved and you think you are. You haven't given God your forever yes. You haven't surrendered to him when you've been knocked off your beast. Your heart has never even asked the question, what must I do to be saved? If your heart has not even asked that question, what makes you think you're saved? God is found only by those who seek him. And I know it's troubling when that light shines on your heart. And some of you, it's an awakening. I thought I was saved, but I wasn't. I'll never forget, I was preaching a revival in a particular place years ago. And when I gave the salvation, I preached the gospel and I gave the salvation altar call. And one of the first people to the altar to receive Christ was one of the elders of that church. And he had been an elder there for more than 20 years. And there was so much joy that he had in his heart after that service was over and he experienced real salvation. He took us all out to dinner and he paid for this lavish feast. And he said, I've been at this church all my life, but I never really heard the gospel preached. I didn't know that I needed to be saved, but he had so much joy in the experience of salvation. And you can have that joy too. But it starts with your heart humbling itself before God. What do you want me to do? Who are you, Lord? Only you can make the crooked places straight in my life. I need you. My friends, without a real encounter with God, any and every change that you make to your life is all superficial. You might successfully reform your ways most of the time it's temporary. But only an encounter with God changes you down to the core of who you are. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we confess that we need you. I need you. I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Mighty God, let that be the heart of each and every one of your sons and daughters, each and every one under the sound of my voice. Let that cry reverberate in our hearts. I need you, oh, I need you every hour, I need you. I need you every hour, most blessed Lord. No matter how long I walk with you, I still need you. No matter how close you allow me to come, I still need you, no matter how many blessings you give me. 
I must continue to be poor in spirit so that I might receive the kingdom of God afresh and anew every day. But God, some of us have become wealthy in spirit where we think we're okay. Where we think we got it down. Some of us just need to be saved. And some of us need to be saved again. Because we backslidden and we don't even know it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd fall upon every heart and every soul and that you would use this message today to draw some soul to your throne who's never known you, who's never truly surrendered to you, God. Save souls today, God. Save souls today, God. God, what we desire is the salvation of the soul, O oh God. Only you can do it, God. And Lord, it doesn't come through some ritual like repeating some prayer after me. It comes through a work of the Holy Spirit upon an open heart, upon a repentant soul. And Holy Spirit, I ask you right now to come and do that work in some soul. Lord, the scripture says that you are married to the backslider. I pray, Father, that you would draw back every backslider right now, that we would turn back from the error of our ways. That we would come back into the fold. Lord, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but you have laid on him, on Jesus, on your son. You have laid on him the iniquity of us all. But now we are returning to the shepherd and overseer of our soul. We look to you today, Jesus. Now, right now, right where you are, I just want you to deal with God. You need to talk to God. You need to seek God. You need to pursue God. And it's not in some prescribed way. I'm not going to give you the words to do it. It's got to come from your heart. It's got to come from your soul. You talk to Jesus. If you want him, ask for him. If you want him, seek him. Tell him what's in your heart. If you need him, tell him I need you. If you want him, tell him I want you. If you're desperate, tell him you're desperate. And if you're not, ask him to make you desperate. Lord, would you make me desperate? Would you make me desperate? I need you. Just, just take a moment to do that right now. Don't disconnect. Don't leave. Don't leave the service. Don't leave the chat. We're not done. God's not done. The Holy Spirit isn't done. He's still working on your heart. I feel the Spirit of God moving on your soul. I, I hear Him calling you. I sense the anointing of the Holy Spirit reaching for your soul today. He said, today if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's reaching for you today. Don't harden your heart. Don't you dare think that this message is for somebody else. This message is for you. Every heart and every soul would respond by saying, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, O oh Lord. It's me, O oh Lord. It's me, O oh Lord. I need you. I need you. If it had not been for the Lord, if it had not been for the Lord, in Jesus' name, just 30 more seconds. Seek him like you never sought him before. I just see the Spirit of God coming on some of your hearts right now. I see some of you breaking. I see tears in eyes. I see tears. I can hear sobs. I can hear it in the Spirit as the Spirit of God has knocked some of you down off of your beast right now. I see pride breaking off of hearts right now. Passivity is, is just melting away. I, see, I can see it in the Spirit. I can hear it. God is doing it right now. 
Some of you are never going to be the same because you're responding to God rightly in this moment. Humility and repentance is coming into hearts. I sense it. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God. 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 Lord, let the fruit of this be a real outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Do it now, God. Do it now, God. Seal it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let it not simply be a moment, but let it be a transformation. Make the crooked places straight in us and do it by an encounter with you. I pray in Jesus' name.